Hey everyone, I'm Brendan Hill, and this is Forward Thinking, a podcast by Metagy. Each week, I talk to inspirational business owners, brands, and marketing experts to learn from their experiences on the front line and uncover what it takes to build a world-class business. How do you reinvent an industry with only eight employees? That's what I'm exploring this week with my very special guest, Zoltan Saki, who is the co-founder of Citizen Wolf, who simplify and automate the process of tailoring. Zoltan is super honest and transparent in our conversation about his struggles. He doesn't sugarcoat the tough journey that we all go through when starting our own business. And Zoltan is trying to reimagine the way that everyday clothes are made. So he has some massive challenges that he touches on. And he also touches on how he has found success so far. In my conversation with Zoltan, we cover how to learn from your business failures, lessons from relying too heavily on Facebook ads, and why influencer campaigns don't work for every e-commerce campaign. Zoltan also discusses how to introduce technology into industries that are resistant to change. And we discuss it all today in this wide-ranging conversation with Zoltan Saki. Zoltan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell us the story of how Citizen Wolf came to life. Sure. The short story or the longer story? Right, let's go for the long story. <laughs> how much time have we got? <laughs> so my background originally is advertising. Right. I did visual communications here at UTS and then found myself as an art director in various ad agencies around the world. Uh, and it was great. I had a good time. And then one day I got really frustrated with a particular part of the process. So I ended up quitting to make some software, right? which at the time was called Moodshare. Uh, I was very proud of what we did. It was basically real-time collaborative mood boards, and this was before Google Docs. But I couldn't turn it into a business. Mm. I had an absolutely zero experience in B2B sales, and we made some mistakes with the tech stack. So cut a long story short... Uh, couldn't turn it into a business and kind of had to shut it down. And because doing something I'd never done before worked so well the first time, I <laughs> thought that I'd fall into a fashion brand with a friend of mine. Right. And so we started making T-shirts, graphic T-shirts, based around the books that we loved. So we'd read mm. literature, make art, put it on the T-shirt, and then sell it via Facebook ads to people who loved the book. And when Facebook just launched, or Facebook ads just launched, and they were incredibly cheap... Mm. It worked. And then the ads got more and more and more expensive and more and more complicated. Then it didn't work so great. Right. <laughs> so anyway, I pivoted into menswear proper. We were doing the traditional fashion thing. We were making externally in Portugal and China and going through all of the problems associated with the kind of globalized supply chain and different mm. languages. Had a few successful Kickstarters, but... Again, ultimately couldn't turn that idea into a business. Mm. I mean, it was, it was niche, to say the least, <laughs> right? Menswear inspired by literature. Mm. So very, very painfully kind of shut that down. And definitely it took me too long to do that, you know. I, I, was, mm. I was way too emotionally involved. Anyway, the phoenix from the ashes of those two experiences is Citizen Wolf. And the catalyst for the business starting was actually me arriving back in Australia. I'd been overseas for many years. And 
I reconnected with somebody I used to work with here in my very first job outside of uni in an ad agency. And his name was Eric, and he'd been living in China, in Hong Kong primarily. And he's really short, self-admittedly, <laughs> and struggles to find clothes. Literally has to get everything altered, right? Mm. And in Hong Kong, it wasn't an issue because there's tailors on every corner and they're not snobby. They'll make mm. you whatever you want, right? If you want a fancy suit, easy. If you want anything else, they don't care. They'll take your money, <laughs> they'll make it. Here in Australia, it's not like that, right? Mm. So you go to a tailor and they'll be like, yeah, I'll make you a flash suit or a wedding dress perhaps, but nothing else. And so it was kind of a flippant comment and he was like, you know what, it's just so frustrating. Why is it so hard to find clothes that fit? And I knew enough about clothing at that stage to be dangerous and we started talking and, yeah, here we are three and a half years later. Wow. That's the genesis of how we began. Mm. And I know you guys have a lot of technology behind your product now as well. Yeah. So that was... um, as I said, the confluence of those previous failures was really f- pure fashion and, and I would say, I guess, pure technology. Mm. And so Citizen Wolf is very consciously at the intersection of those two domains. And my personal position is that the industry is antiquated, to say the least. Mm. You know, the way clothes are made hasn't changed in pretty much 250 years. You know, since the advent of the Industrial Revolution, The way clothes are made is exactly the same today. It's faster, obviously. Things get to market a lot faster and globalised supply chains and fabric comes from all around the world and if you go to fast fashion, you know, those garments, they'll do a little bit in several countries kind of thing. It's like it's absolutely crazy, it's opaque, it's inefficient to say the least. And so, yeah, our position is really quite simple that if we were to start afresh today, if we were to imagine how clothes should be made with all the technology we have at our disposal today, how would what would that be? And the answer for us is on-demand, made-to-measure, because it's better for you, the customer. You get exactly what you want. It's guaranteed to fit. And it's also better for the planet, because when you make things on-demand, you don't sit on stock. Mm-hmm. Nothing goes to landfill as a result. You don't go on sale. You're not, you're not trying to just move stuff that was poorly forecast. So really, for us, yeah, tailoring or made-to-measure is the best way of making clothes. Mm. And you have a quote that I've heard you say a couple of times, fast fashion is like junk food. Can you talk on that? Yeah. I mean, if you don't know the stats about fashion, they're really sobering. Mm. So one in three pieces of clothing made every year goes straight to landfill. One in three? One in three, wow. right? Unsold. And often, Unsold. often with the tags on. Wow. Or with the tags on and holes punched through because the brand that made them can't afford to dilute their brand by selling at a significant discount, right? So I'm talking luxury brands. Mm. Or they're burnt. Burnt? Yeah. So there's an identifiable percentage of Sweden's power that comes from burning H&M clothes. What? Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. None of which is really an environmental outcome that anybody wants, right? So that's Mm. the first one in three pieces of clothing made. The second one in three pieces of clothing made every year ends up in landfill within 12 months, right? Because it's poor quality, it broke, it twisted, it shrank in the wash, or it's just gone out of style because, let's face it, that's the business, right? It's this Mm. constant cycle of new. So all up, that's approximately 66 billion pieces of clothing that are made every year and go straight to landfill. Like it's absolutely insane. Yeah. 
And so when we say fast fashion is like junk food, it's quite simply because it's bad for you, it's bad for the planet, and it's unsustainable. And so we, our mission really is to make people reassess their relationship with clothes. You know, do you need 50 jackets? Probably not. You know, how many do you wear? Should you, instead of buying 50 cheap jackets, should you buy instead one or two really well-made jackets that are going to stand the test of time, that are classically designed, they're not trend-led, and in doing so, you really are doing a bit to save the planet. So you have a very personalised product, you're reducing waste. How do you reach your audience? So we're a direct-to-consumer brand. We have chosen very consciously to sidestep the traditional industry, mm. both on the make side but on the distribution side. And look, that comes with its own challenges. Yeah. It's <clears throat> certainly not easy, right, to take on that role of customer acquisition, yeah. which most brands outsource to David Jones or whoever it might, the iconic, right, whoever it might be. So, yeah, it's online primarily mm. is how we find people these days, although we began with a shop in Darlinghurst. Right. In fact, we began at Fishburners back in the day when it was in Ultimo. Right. And uh, we sort of blagged our way in and then started buying fabric rolls and cutting them up after hours and, like, <laughs> leaving mess around and basically got tapped on the shoulder and said, you idiots have to leave. You told us you were making technology. And we're like, well, yeah, yeah, we're getting to the tech bit, you know. <laughs> yeah, from there we found a space in Darlinghurst, which was effectively an office, but it had a single-car garage attached to it. Right. that nobody was doing anything with and the landlord couldn't charge us for either, apparently some quirk of the of the commercial leasing laws. So anyway, we got this garage uh, and we were like, okay, I guess we've got a shop now. So threw up the door and basically dragged anybody who walked past in <laughs> and uh, convinced enough of them to buy a T-shirt that we were sort of off to the races. Mm. Um, to this day, we do still have a shop, much nicer, bigger shop with a lot more light yeah. down in uh, Haymarket. And we also have a sort of a little shop attached to the factory in St. Peter's. Right. But our business is increasingly transitioning online. Right. And so how do you find people? What channels are you focusing on? Keeping in mind that with your previous business, you relied too heavily on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, how do you balance that out now in 2019? By relying too heavily on Facebook <laughs> <laughs> is the uh, perhaps unfortunate truth. Yeah, look, mm. we... Um, our audience skews a bit older, you know, because we do classic basics, it's about cut, fit and cut or and, uh, and fabric. Mm. So we don't print anything on our T-shirts. There are no logos. And we find that people wanting to wear that style of clothing, kind of not being validated by logos is a function of age. Right. Right. So our audience tends to skew a bit older. Even as much as actually more recently and through Facebook, once something that we've identified is that older women is a really underserved segment. Right. And they absolutely love what we do because they can get what they want in a fabric that they choose. They can tweak things like they don't want the neck to drop too long, too low, mm -hmm. sorry, or they want the sleeves to be a bit longer, like say down to the elbow or whatever it happens to be. Or we have one story which one of our customers wanted the sleeves to finish like not three quarters, not full length, but seven eighths <laughs> because she doesn't like this. Is, I'm not making this up. When she does the washing up, 
she doesn't want to have to pull her sleeves up. <laughs> so she's like, can you just oh. cut it there so that I don't have to do that? You know, mm-hmm. And we can because everything's made on demand and, and made to measure. We can make those kind of changes. So, mm. yeah, look, we are, I would say, heavily reliant on Facebook at the moment. Right. It's about 50-50, you know, organic traffic versus paid at the moment. But um, we are certainly looking to diversify that because I, mm. I am aware that having all your eggs in one basket is not always the best idea. Yeah. But to be fair, there's pretty much one game in town, which mm. is Facebook, right? If you want to do visually led advertising online, because yeah. we've tried Google, you know, we did. We sunk $1,000 into Google and saw zero sales. Wow. Yeah. So we quickly stopped doing that. Haven't tried Pinterest, but that is sort of next up for yeah. us. That said, I looked at the stats. There's just not that many people using Pinterest in Australia. But yes, yeah, we need to diversify. And what about Instagram? Have you done any influencer campaigns? You know, we advertise on Instagram or via Facebook as mm-hmm. well. And there's a certain customer that is heavily sort of Instagram led for us, but it's not that older lady that I was talking about before. They're on Facebook. Right. You know what I mean? They haven't yeah. transitioned yet. In terms of influencers, you know, we've, at the very start, we paid a few people, waste of time, waste of money. Right. In my opinion, mm. I know there are a lot of businesses that have made, done very well off sort of paid influences. Mm. For whatever reason, it hasn't worked for us. And were these micro influences or were these macro? You know, these, these, yeah, these were, you know, like we weren't paying a lot of money. Yeah. We didn't have a lot of money. We still don't have a lot of money, you know, yeah. to pay. And I personally struggle with that notion of the influencer economy. I think our brand is based on authenticity mm. of self. Do you know what I mean? In terms of made to measure when you have to choose the fabric and you, you know, you choose the style and there's an element of you, right, as a mm. person in that thing. If we then pay somebody to market that who hasn't actually bought into the ethos Mm. and why it makes sense, it's kind of disingenuous. And I do suspect that people see through it. You know, like there was a point in time where influencer, nobody really understood what was going on, right? There was this enormous economy and lots of people were doing it and lots of people were spending money and making money. But I do think now everyone's a little more aware So, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think if I was personally an Instagram influencer, I'd be a bit worried because I I wonder how it's going to change, you know, as the Mm. algorithm changes and and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's interesting. So I know that you are active organically on Instagram because that's how I originally found out about (laughs) Citizen Wolf. Scrolling through my Instagram feed, you know, obviously a lot of noise, but what stood out to me was a golden retriever. Uh, (laughs) Maggie! Maggie the golden retriever. So obviously I have a golden retriever myself named Brielle and we have a golden retriever meetup called Inner West Goldies. Shout out to all the golden retrievers who come once a month. So I was very interested, clicked through. So what other sort of, like how do you tell your Instagram story? Like Mm. how do you get the Citizen Wolf brand into a single feed? Right. And that has been our problem from day one. You know, what do we focus on? Mm. And what's the story that matters to our audience, you know, is it fit or is it sustainability, Mm. you know, because made to measure or made on demand is quite simply the most planet friendly way of making clothes. Mm. 
And I have a huge issue with the macro sustainability trend in fashion and it's like, oh, we use organic cotton so we're sustainable. That's bullshit. Mm. Personally, my opinion is that if you are not running an on-demand manufacturing model, if you are still mass producing, often in the third world somewhere, you cannot claim to be sustainable. Because if you're mass producing, you're still part of the one in three garments goes to landfill, Mm. right? Even if you solve the next bit, which is the next one third as in, you know, they don't break because they're made well and good for you. Mm. Nobody's solved forecasting in fashion. Mm. Nobody. And that's why one in three pieces of clothing made every year go straight to landfill. So if you are still playing that mass production game, I believe you cannot claim to be truly sustainable. It's just greenwashing. Mm. So to get back to your original question, you know, what do people care about? Do they care about it being the most planet-friendly T-shirts in the world or do they care about the made-to-measure bit? Mm. And honestly, we've struggled and we go back and forth all the time. And some people care about one and not the other and vice versa. And on Instagram as a kind of like outbound channel, we have to play both games. Yeah. When we're advertising, obviously, we can dial up one story and dial down the other, sort of depending on who we're talking to. Mm. Honestly, I don't think we're good at Instagram. Mm. It's something that we need to get much better at. It's always been something that was necessary. Mm. You know, we have to play the game. Yeah. But we're a small team and we're doing a a hell of a lot of other things. Mm. And so it's never been a focus for us, right? Mm. That's interesting that an e-commerce brand is uh, being honest about Instagram and saying maybe it's not the best channel because, you know, when you talk to early stage businesses that have e-commerce brands, they're all in the mindset that Instagram is the one and only channel. Look, it's different for every business and I can't speak for anybody else. But all I know is that engagement on Instagram means nothing if it doesn't translate to sales. Yeah. I don't care how many people like our photos. And now that Instagram's changed that whole thing and and (laughs) nobody cares (laughs) anymore. But, you know, even before when it was public, how many people were like, yes, having high engagement is great and that's what everybody wants and everybody should be striving for. But Mm. ultimately as an e-com brand, if Instagram isn't driving sales, then it's not something that we should be focusing on. And historically, that's been true for us. Mm. But as I say, you know, there are lots of brands I know in Australia and obviously around the world that have managed to make Instagram work for them. So Mm. good for them. I wish wish they'd tell me the secret. (laughs) So you have a highly personalized product as well. Is there any way that you can get that level of personalization into the marketing and communications? Is that something you're trying to work on at the moment? Yes, it is. We don't do a great job of it. I guess the first 18 months, I'd say, of our of our of the life of the company was pretty much R&D. We were selling T-shirts, which was great, so we were getting paid for it in many ways. But um, it wasn't until we launched our Magic Fit algorithm about, again, about 18 months ago that um, I would say we kind of really started so the magic fit algorithm, that sounds very interesting. Can you talk us uh, through that a bit more? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess if I had to boil down what we do at Citizen Morfits, we simplify and automate the process of tailoring mm. because historically, traditionally, tailoring is super high-touch endeavor. You have to, as the customer, you have to go to the shop, right? You then have to stand there awkwardly with almost no clothes on while, while you get measured. Yeah by somebody, it's it's a very intimate kind of up Mm. in your grill experience. (laughs) Um, 
And people go through it because they want the outcome and that's fine. You know, when we began, though, we knew that for suits and for wedding dresses, people will do that, Mm -hmm. right? And they will go back for the second fitting and all the rest. And those, you know, they're charging the people, the brands that make those clothes are charging for it, right? Yeah. But we weren't trying to build a tailoring company. We were trying to reimagine the way that clothes are made, right? And I mean by clothing, I mean casual clothing. I mean the clothes we wear every day. Because let's face it, not everybody wears fancy suits these days, or just suits in general, sorry, let alone fancy. And you don't get married that many times in your life, right? So it just seemed crazy to us that the pinnacle of clothing, the best experience for the customer was reserved for the clothes that are just not worn very much, if at all. So we began by thinking, well, how would we, if we could, how could we bring tailoring to the clothing that we wear every day? And we knew it couldn't be done in the same way that it's traditionally been done. So we built the magic fit algorithm really to solve that data in problem, Mm. to not force people to have to come to the shop, to be able to do it from the comfort of your home, on your sofa. So magic fit is a few layers of technology that basically estimate your body measurements based on only three or four very simple biometric inputs that everybody knows. So I need height, weight, age, and then for women also bra. And with those three or four data points, we can create a a mathematical model of your body, which is about 94% accurate. Wow. Yeah. So we've done it thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And it was actually built on very large data sets that we got access to from around the world. So, and the great thing about an algorithm, obviously, is that it gets better. So the more Mm -hmm. data we feed it, uh, the better it gets. The more misses we have, the better it gets too, right? So we actually like it when it doesn't work because Mm. we get to improve the model and and it gets more accurate over time. So that 94% is going to keep climbing. Yes, it should. Look, we could be more accurate immediately by asking more questions. Mm. But it's a balance between simplicity and accuracy. And we actually, when we did it, when we made it, we identified about 12, about a dozen questions, right, uh, that we could ask. Mm. And we ended up up trading some accuracy for simplicity. What we're trying to do is make Citizen Wolf an e-commerce experience that's basically the same to to every other shop you've ever been on. Mm. With the exception that one time... (laughs) we need to get this data off you, yeah, right? But only once because mm. once we've got it, we can make a T-shirt and then once we send it to you and you put it on and if it's perfect, great. If it's not, we fix it because we do free alterations wow. so there's no risk. And But once it's on you, we can obviously calibrate yeah. from that, right? Mm. So we only need this data off you once. And then once we, ho- once we have it, yeah, the, the website just turns into a, a normal e-com experience. Wow. So I go to Citizen Wolf website, I pick what shirt I want, I put my numbers into the Magic Fit algorithm. Yep. What, what happens next? So you choose your fabric mm-hmm. and fabric drives price. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, at the moment, we have about six fabrics and we have somewhere between sort of two and six colors per fabric. Um, so we have a wide variety, starts at $59, which we're very proud of because yeah. we are made here in Sydney. We use Australian made fabric wow. and of course it's made to measure. At $59, we, the only reason we can do that is because we're direct to consumer. Mm. You know, if we were trying to sell wholesale, those T-shirts would be $150 mm. as a starting point. Uh, but again, it's important to us based on the history of tailoring being for the 1%. It's actually really important to us that we drive the price down 
as far as we possibly can so that we can open it up to as many people as possible. Interesting. Do you have any tips about introducing technology into, you know, traditional type businesses like you've done and how do you get in that mindset to reinvent a whole industry as, uh, <laughs> as you're attempting to do? Firstly, you have to be naive and stupid <laughs> <laughs> with a bit of ego thrown in. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, one of the best things I think for what we're doing is the fact that we do not have a fashion background. Right. So coming at it from the outsider's perspective mm. is actually, I would say, really critical. Mm. You know, we ask naive questions and then we don't assume the answer. I'll give you an example. When we started, everybody said it couldn't be done. Yeah. Right? Nobody wants a tailored T-shirt. Nobody's going to pay for a tailored T-shirt. Nobody's going to make a tailored T-shirt. Because, the, you know, it's not a $2,000 suit or a $10,000 wedding dress or whatever it happens to be, right? There's just like the, the commercial model didn't make sense for people in the industry. Mm. You know, I think if we knew more about clothing and how it was made and the business, the traditional business of it, we would have reached the same conclusion. Mm. It was actually only by not really knowing a lot of things that we were able to get to a different answer. Mm. So I think... I have a lot of respect for people that come into new industries from outside. There's an enormous learning curve, of course, that you've yeah. got to be prepared to take. Mm. But really it is that outsider status that allows us to do what we do. Yeah. yeah. An example that pops in my head is Elon Musk coming to build SpaceX, not from a rocket background. Yeah, and he was like, we can make it reusable. And everyone's yeah. like, no, you can't. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. So you're the Elon Musk of the fashion industry? Oh, shit, no. <laughs> <laughs> if only. I wish I was Elon Musk, but no. Um, mm. I don't even think I would compare on the intelligence scale to Elon <laughs> Musk. Like I'd be a newt, you know, compared to Elon or a single-celled organism. But, mm. you know, we're not making rockets. Mm. Fashion is not as sexy as space flight or interplanetary <laughs> exploration. Yeah. But... We do believe we're changing the world because, as I said at the start, there's so many problems and historical issues with fashion and the way things are made. And as I said, most of it goes to landfill yeah. and it's insane, right? Mm. So there are in incredibly large structural issues with the business. Mm. When two of every three things you make goes straight to landfill and nobody questions it, yeah. it's insane. So, you know, there's a lot of people, fashion's a tough game. But when you figure it out, people make a lot of money, right? The richest mm. man in Spain is the guy behind Zara. Right. So when you figure it out, yeah, there's money to be made, but that myopia of the way things are done means that, yeah, you just don't think about sending two out of three things to landfill. Mm. Right? It's not an issue. But it is an issue because yeah, <laughs> we only have one planet. Yeah. There's only so many resources. And I don't know if you're familiar with the concept called Earth Overshoot Day, but no. basically every year there's a date within that year where we as a, as a planet, as a species, have used the renewable resources of that planet of that year. It's a bit complicated, but it's basically like the simple idea is a planetary budget, right? Right. And like a normal financial budget, it should go from the start of the week to the end of the week or the start of the month to the end of the month. In this case, the start of the year to the end of the year, right? Mm. In terms of the earth is capable of only renewing so many resources over a th period of 365 days. Right. Well, since the 70s, that day has been getting earlier and earlier and earlier every year. Mm. 
Mm. So in 1970, it was about one planet per year, right? This year, just gone, June 29 was the date. Wow. So not even seven months in to the year, we've actually consumed the entire year's worth of planetary resources. So what that means is that we're actually using about 1.7 planets mm. worth of resources every year. Wow. And that's obviously not okay. <laughs> <laughs> not sustainable. Yeah. Wow. How are you guys leveraging the whole zero waste movement and, you know, a lot of publicity around sustainability at the moment? Yes. Like we, I think if we'd tried to start Citizen Wolf five years ago, even maybe 10, it probably, I think our timing would have been off. Mm. You know, there is a, there's a huge movement towards sustainability in fashion. As I said before, I have a huge problem with it, yeah, mostly yeah. because I do believe it's greenwashing for the most part. Yeah. You know, H&M say they have this conscious collection and the Iconic comes out with the conscious collection. It's all bullshit, mm. in my opinion, because none of those brands run an on-demand manufacturing model. They are all part of the structural problem with one in three or two in three pieces of clothing go to landfill every year, right? Mm. So that said there's movement and there's a general awareness more than ever about kind of how clothes are made and people being conscious of mm. that. So, yeah, look, we our timing in that sense was good. What we found, mm. though, is, you know, we set out to solve the fit problem. The mm. sustainability bit, it's actually a byproduct yeah. of just making things in a better way. We kind of stumbled on it. You know, I'd like to sit here and claim that we'd mapped it all out and we're geniuses. <laughs> it's not true. We just, we saw a problem, we tackled it, and then as we've gone on, we've we've kind of realised that there are all these ancillary benefits of the way that we make clothes. Mm. Yeah. And speaking about software development for small business, so you already had a software background. How do early-stage businesses who want to venture out into some kind of tech area for their business, what would you recommend that these guys do? So technology is hard, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's never been easier to start a company. You know, there are incredible tools around these days. Most of them are really accessible price-wise, you know, not having to build your own e-commerce solution, for example. Yeah. You know, you can, you can spin up a Shopify store in an afternoon like that's pretty crazy. Yeah. However, there's zero differentiation, right? And that's the problem. I think deep technology is something that you really have to do internally. I think you can start, you know, you can do an MVP, you can do a pilot sort of thing if you outsource dev. It comes with its own risks. I've been there, I've done it, I've had some good experiences, I had a lot of terrible experiences outsourcing. I would say it's a great way to start, but as soon as you possibly can, you need to bring that in-house mm. because you just don't move fast enough mm. is my experience with outsourcing dev, right? You just don't move fast enough. And when you're in certainly e-com, you know, or you're in an online game or in the tech game, speed is your greatest asset. Mm. So, yeah, when you're stuck writing, you know, specs and detailed, you know, this button has to go here and you have to like meticulously detail it to the nth degree so that the dev shop doesn't screw it up. But invariably they will. (laughs) 
it's just, you know, it's ultimately, it's not a great use of time. Whereas if you're sitting next to that person, it, it tends to go much faster. Mm. And you touched on tools. What kind of tools do Citizen Wolf use in their marketing? And, you know, are there any under $100 that have maybe made a big uh, significant impact in the business? So we use, at the moment, we're on Shopify. You're on Shopify, nice. Um, highly customised, but, you know, we started by buying one of their themes, yep. which was cool. Shopify is a bit of a love-hate relationship. You know, there are a lot of good things. There are a lot of a lot of annoying things. But look, Shopify is great for the most part. What else? We use MailChimp, although now that they've sort of broken up their marriage with Shopify, we're looking to move. Right. We use SendGrid for our transactional emails because every time you make a purchase, there's a sequence of emails that go out like, your T-shirt was cut 23 seconds ago, you know, oh, based nice. on the tech. that It literally was cut and then we send them an email. Nice. So we've got a bunch of those and they're off SendGrid. So I think we're going to transition our marketing email capacity to SendGrid too because they've mm. just done this thing and our text messages come through Twilio and they're all now the one shop. Nice. So just sort of that, that seems to make sense to us. And what else? I'm not really sure. I think that's kind of it. Like it's pretty... It's a pretty simple stack. Yeah. The irony of coming from an advertising background is that we're pretty shit at marketing. <laughs> <laughs> you know we're getting better, but we really did. We had so many things to solve on the product level, mm. and I haven't said it yet, but we actually ended up creating our own factory because the garment manufacturers that existed didn't want to work with us mm. because they're from that legacy mindset of – yeah, I'll make you 500 teas or 5,000 even better. Yeah. I'm not going to make you one. Or if I am going to make you one, it's called a sample and it's going to cost you three times what it should cost yeah. to make the T-shirt. And they just couldn't compute that there's a different way of doing it and they couldn't understand that you could cut things one by one on a laser, each one being different versus cutting, you know, 500 at a time on a big roll. Mm. And so we struggled for ages we found in our little outsourced manufacturing shop down in Waterloo and, and they were great because they wanted to work with us. But, you know, we would deliver a batch of T-shirts and it would sit on her floor for a week. Mm. But if it wasn't sitting on the floor, it wasn't in the production queue. So when we started, it took us about four weeks to deliver a T-shirt. Wow. And the fact that people paid us money and then waited four weeks still blows my mind. Yeah. You know, today it, on average we turn it around in under 10 days. Nice and we're getting faster all the time. Mm. But that's because we ended up biting the bullet and creating our own factory. And you mentioned your experience at the ad agencies overseas. Is there anything that you have taken from that experience that you've now transitioned into Citizen Wolf? Yeah, I need more people. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to be part of a really big team. There's a lot of inefficiencies, don't get me wrong, in big teams. Mm. But we are trying to reinvent an industry and at the moment, we're eight people. Wow. So it's hard. Yeah. We're juggling a lot of hats each. We're dropping balls as a result, you know, like we are not as good as we should be or could be in kind of not on the product side. The product is excellent. Mm. It always has been. But on the operation side, on the marketing side, as I said, ironically, there's a lot of things we could be doing better. So, yeah, I'd like more people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you keep your employees engaged and motivated? So it was important to Eric and I that everybody had equity at the moment. Uh, you know, we are a small team. It is a startup. 
it's inherently risky. Mm. And so we, we're not greedily kind of trying to keep it all to ourselves. We really do believe that you get the best out of people by motivating them as owners of the business mm. and just trusting that they will make good decisions from that standpoint. So that's the first thing and I guess the most important. And yeah. they've also got Maggie, the golden retriever as well. in the. And office. look, don't get me wrong, Maggie, she's our cortisol differential machine. <laughs> if anybody's stressed or swearing, which is most of the time me, <laughs> she comes up and she sits right next to you and she puts a hand on you and, you know, says like, come on, let's have a cuddle. And yeah, it's wonderful. And, you know, I think it's really important. It blows my mind that most companies do not let people bring dogs to work. I know it's like a Silicon Valley kind of startup-y yeah. thing, but it's crazy because there's heaps and heaps of scientific papers that mm. show dogs in the office reduce stress. Yeah, I was, I've been reading a couple, funnily enough, really, yeah. try, trying to get uh, my golden retriever, Brielle, into some offices and only 15 minutes with a dog increases your... Uh, serotonin levels by two to three times. Yeah, so, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some crazy benefits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, icebreakers and team building as yep. well. Yeah. Exercise, you know, instead of going for a smoke break, you can go around the block and take yeah. the dog to the toilet. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, look, there's so mm. many benefits. And mm. it's funny because, you know, she's my dog, but everybody loves her. Yeah. Everybody in the company really, really loves her. And um mm. And it's good for the dog too. It's good for Maggie because she gets socialised with a ton of people. When we used to sit in Haymarket all the time, there'd be people coming in, like hundreds of people coming in sort of every week. And I think that's really good as well for mm. from the dog's perspective. Mm. Um, but, yeah, certainly the payoff to the humans is <laughs> is pretty huge. And good for the social media posts as well. <laughs> and every time we do a photo shoot, I, I'm determined to get Maggie in there. Yeah. <laughs> She's very photogenic, straight down yeah. the barrel, you know, yeah, no nice. blinking. Yeah. She knows what's going on. Trained very well. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've come into an industry pretty fresh. How do you learn how to learn? Like how did you get up to speed on the fashion industry originally and how do you do that? Do you read books? Do you mm. go online? Can you talk us through that? Yeah. Look, I think anybody who is in the startup game has to love learning. Mm. And if you don't, you should go and just get a job in corporate right? because it's way easier and more stable mm. and there's probably more money in it. You know, but you really do have to love learning and you have to be comfortable with not knowing the answer, right? And there's only, not everybody's okay with that. But there's a pretty crazy resource called the internet and like almost everything's there, right? <laughs> and you can get up to speed kind of quickly. But, you know, there's an accumulation, aggregation sort of aspect to it where it, it is only after years of looking at stuff that it all kind of starts to build this map. Mm. But, yeah, absolutely, reading books, reading blogs. There's an interesting, there's a really good resource in fashion in particular called Business of Fashion, right. which does what it says on the tin, mm. which has some, like really interesting articles and stuff. Um, you know, we'd never opened a shop mm. when, we, when we opened that shop in Darlinghurst. Had no idea. Like when I went through uni, I was a bartender, so I'd never even had like retail experience. Wow. But our, like, our bumper sticker... Well, my personal bumper sticker is like, how hard can it be? Mm. Turns out pretty bloody hard. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, there's a lot that I don't know mm. and probably won't know. But, yeah, I do think having a, having a really naive, I would say, mindset and attitude to things is really mm. important, you know. 
Mm. Not assuming that you know the answer. And the other thing I would say is just, you know, the whole lean methodology of do a small experiment, see what happens. If it works, double down. If it doesn't, do something else, you know. And Mm. I think building that muscle and being able to get through those loops faster, whatever that might mean for you and your business, is that's the critical thing. Yeah. Yeah. And circling back to the books, is there any particular book that you recommend for people in early stage business? Yeah, so um, there's a couple we've bought recently, Crossing the Chasm, uh, which is a pretty old classic, Mm. updated Sammy recently by Jeffrey Moore. And then something else we've just been put onto is quite happily called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Uh, You know, management is hard. Management of people is really hard and in my previous job in the corporate world as an art director, you know, I didn't really have to do that. Mm. You know, you work in these little teams of one or two people, sometimes three, and you kind of, you're off you, you're doing your own thing as a creative. And so you're just not exposed to that side of things. But, you know, as we grow and we put on more people, the people management side of things is something that's sort of like my next, the next thing that I need to really dive into because I need to get better at it. And, you know, when you are, when you're not paying above market rate, when you're paying probably below market rate as we do, as most startups do, you know, you're selling the dream and you, you have people working for you who, yeah, everybody needs money. But actually the reason that that somebody comes and chooses to work with Citizen Wolf is because they fundamentally believe that there's a better way of making clothes and the current Mm. system is broken. Mm. So just making sure that everybody's on board and everybody knows that there's a higher purpose Mm. is really important. And being clear and being able to articulate it, again, it only comes through repetition and time. And, you know, we're three and a half years in and I'm only now really starting to kind of understand what we do and why. Mm. You know, it sounds crazy. Or maybe like I'm getting better at articulating it. Mm. Yeah. No, it's an amazing mission. Zoltan... I want to thank you so much for coming in and spending some time with us today, providing a lot of value to the listeners. Everything that Zoltan has said, you can find in the show notes at metagy.com forward slash podcast. I've got a couple of questions before we bid you farewell today. I just wanted to get your perspective on what you would tell early stage companies. They're starting an e-commerce brand for the first time. What kind of tips around marketing would you give these guys? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I think, first of all, it's much easier, I would say, to sell a product that's differentiated than just trying to sell a generic product. You know, on the one hand, you're competing on price. If you're just selling what everybody else is selling, you really only have price Mm. to play with. If you're making stuff that's novel, that's yours, I think it's a lot easier But I guess the real lesson is know your customer. And it sounds trite, but really three and a half years in, I think we're only just beginning to really know who our customer is at Citizen Wolf. Mm. But if you're really clear on that, everything gets simple, you know. The way you write is easier. Who you target is obviously easier. Where you put the ads, you know, and I think we've – never done a good job at really deep diving into that. We're doing it now, but um, that I would say that would be my number one piece of advice is, Mm. you know, lean startup, get out of the building, 
really, really, really understand the problem that you're solving, mm. if you are, hopefully you are, <laughs> and why people will give you money to solve that problem. You know, I've only recently become aware of the adage, that, you know, like vitamins versus painkillers. And then the next one after that's air, right? So I don't know what you think about vitamins, but generally people pay for them, but they're, it's questionable mm. if they have any effect. So it's hard to get money out of people for mm. vitamins. Whereas if they've got a headache and you're a painkiller mm. and you solve that problem immediately, it's much easier. What you ultimately want to be is air, right? You <laughs> must have air yeah. or you die, right? So if you can get up there, you're made. And it really is, you know, it's understanding the problem. Mm. Awesome, Zoldan. Thank you very much for coming in today. We have one final question that we like to ask all of our guests. You're on the first flight to Mars with Elon Musk and the first settlers aboard the SpaceX Starship rocket. What business do you start when you land on Mars and how would you market it to the new Martians? So I was thinking about this and there's a lesson that I like to think about from Levi Strauss, actually, who made a lot more money than anybody mining gold ever did. Right. Right. And it's the old adage, you don't go and you don't mine the gold, you sell the shovels, or in this case, the jeans that they were wearing. So I tried to apply that to Mars and I was like, well, what would Mm. that be? And I guess it would be starting a business that provides the tools for people looking for water on Mars. Because there is water there and we need, if you're going to make a habitable village or city, we need to solve it, right? Mm. So, and it's much easier to extract it probably than get it from any other, any other means. So yeah, I don't quite know what that would be, but I guess I've got nine months on the rocket ship to figure it out (laughs) and talk to the scientists that know. You can talk to Elon as well. Yeah, hopefully him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's probably got an idea. You'd have a couple, I imagine. So Zoltan, really appreciate your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up and how can people find out more about Citizen Wolf? Only thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great to chat. Um, Yeah, you can find us online, citizenwolf.com. If you are in Sydney, come down to the shop. You know, you can touch and feel all the fabrics. But, yeah, the Magic Fit algorithm was built so that you don't have to. So Mm. wherever you are, uh, we're Australia only at the moment, but wherever you are, jump online. Shipping's free. Prices start at $59, mm. and I guarantee it's the best T-shirt you'll ever own. Yeah, well, I'm going to head down on the weekend because this T-shirt's not fitting very well. And, uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. I was thinking it the whole time, but I wasn't going to say best. anything. And uh, it might get added to the H&M fire pile in Sweden as well. So, uh, no, it definitely opened up my eyes to sustainability in fashion. Solden, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. From Metagy, this is the Forward Thinking Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable tips from today's episode. If you like what you heard, you can help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. If you know a business owner who needs help with their marketing, and I mean, don't we all know one of those guys, tell them to check us out. Never miss another episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more about Metagy and get a listener-exclusive three-month free trial, visit us at metagy.com forward slash podcast. You can also view all of the resources and tools mentioned in this episode at metagy.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, why not listen to some other episodes and join the world's leading community of forward-thinking marketers. 
I'm Brendan Hill, your first business connection, and I'll catch you next week for another award-winning episode of the Forward Thinking Podcast.